Lord. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Father, thank you for what it says. Father, I pray that you would teach us through it, Father, that you would give us application in it. And Father, without you, Father, it's not possible to even understand what it says. Even though we've read it, Lord, it takes your spirit, takes your working in us. Your word says without you, we can do nothing. So we need you, Father. We need you to teach us and instruct us through your word this morning. And Father, it is a blessing to be able to open up your word and to be able to share it together, to teach from it, to preach from it, that we might grow. In Christ's name, amen. All right, John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Let's go read 26 of these verses. Now you notice in the title... I put Woman at the Well, part one, because we'll be bouncing back. There's no way we can talk about all this, okay? Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had, had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it, who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to, to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up to everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you know you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this, this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither, uh, you will neither on this mountain or, nor in Jerusalem worship, worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. 
But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is, call, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The account of the Samaritan woman begins as Jesus is in the Judean countryside with his disciples. And they're baptizing. Of course, Jesus is not baptizing because he has another baptism to baptize with. Okay, so they're still baptizing under the law, under the preparation for the Messiah, although he's still there. That baptism of Christ isn't going to happen until Pentecost. Okay, so there's a whole different baptism. So the scripture says in the first four verses again, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but here it is. But he needed to go through where? Samaria. Now, the time wasn't right for a confrontation in Jerusalem, so Jesus is returning to Galilee. His travels are taking him through what we know as Samaria, although the shortest route to Galilee, that's the shortest route to, to go to get to Galilee, the Jews would avoid that route. They would go around. Uh, they avoided it because there was a deep distrust and dislike between the Jews and the Samaritans. A little bit of history here. When the southern kingdom of Judah was conquered by the Babylonians, they took almost every captive, exiling them uh, to the Babylonian Empire, and they left behind some people who were the lowest classes of society, possibly because they didn't want that type in Babylon. And these that were left behind intermarried with other peoples who slowly uh, came into that region, and the Samaritans emerged as an ethnic and religious group, and them combining them with what was done through the Assyrians' invasion many years before. And so because the Samaritans had a historical connection to the people of Israel, their faith was a combination of law and ritual from the law of Moses and various superstitions. And they built their own temple for the worship of God, which was considered to the Jews to be a pagan move. And so most Jews in Jesus' time despised the Samaritans even more than they despised the Gentiles because they were religiously or religiously speaking treated as half-breeds or, or a mongrel faith. Uh, they were equivalent to dogs in their eyes. And so Samaria was known as the name of the territory and the city, which if you remember back in 1 Kings, go back here to 1 Kings 16, verse 24, 1 Kings 16, 24. And this is a city that King Omri had built and named after Shemer, his former, its former owner, 1624. And he bought the hill of Samaria and from Shemer for two talents of silver. Then he built on the hill and called the name of the city which he built Samaria after the name of Shemer, 
who owned the hill or owner of the hill. By the way, Samaria means watch mountain. Okay? Or the mountain to keep an eye on. Watch mountain. Now that's a lot different than what was the mount the temple was built on in, in Judea is what? Well, that was Mount, anybody know? Moriah, you got it. Okay. So this was called Watch Mountain. Samaria in the time of Christ's visit was known as Sychar. So that name had changed to Sychar. And this is where Abram first came when he arrived in Canaan from Babylon, where God first appeared to Abram in Canaan and renewed the promise of giving the land to him and his descendants, and where Abram built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. So let's go back here to Genesis chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. Genesis 12 and verses 6 through 8. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Morah and the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called it, called on the name of the Lord. So this is also where Jacob came safely when he returned with his family from living with Laban. If we go to Genesis chapter 33, verse 18, then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city, and he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it Elo, Elohe Israel. Okay? Now, that's not only the place, when we look at 33 here, uh, it's, it's the region that was given to Joseph. And eventually to Manasseh and Ephraim, his sons. Okay, if we go to Genesis 48, verse 22. Kind of giving you a little bit of history of what's happening here. It'll help to understand what's going on. So 48, 22. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. So they end up here. This Joseph gets this chunk of land and it's given to, to Manasseh and Ephraim, his sons. And this is also where Jacob built an altar to the Lord. He called it, as I said, El Elo, Israel. Um, but it's also the place, well, this, this is what established a connection between Jacob and what became known as Jacob's well. Note, Sychar, or Shechem, was also the place where Diana, the daughter of Jacob, was raped, and the sons of Jacob massacred the men of the city in retaliation. Okay, we don't need to read all of Genesis 34, but that's where that account is found. Matter of fact, right after the Genesis 33 verse, it goes into that 
topic. This is also where the bones of Joseph were eventually buried when they were carried up from Egypt. So we'd see that in the book of Joshua here. If you want to go over to Joshua really quick, Joshua 24 and verse 32. Joshua 24, 32. The bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver, which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. There's a lot of history here on that specific ground that Jesus is stopping to get a drink. Okay? Uh, and it's also where Joshua is buried. If you go to verses 29, uh, and I found this interesting. Now it came to pass after these things, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old, and they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timath Sarah, which is in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of, the, of Mount Gash. So Joseph was always also buried in that area or that region. The original name of the place was Sikkim or Shechem, but now the Jews call it Sychar which name they used as a term of reproach, okay? This will show you how much they, they hated the Samaritans. And maybe you can get a taste of the activity of why they would hate the Samaritans because the, it was a name, Sychar is not a good name to call a city. You know, it's, it's like if you go down the division... Uh, it's, I want to say it's Nevada Street in Spokane. I think it's Nevada. But you'll see a tavern there that says Ichabod's. Anybody ever seen that tavern in Spokane? You know what Ichabod means? It means the glory of the Lord has departed the place. What a name to call your business. But it's fitting, right? So Sychar here is a term of reproach. Uh, intimating thereby that it was a seat of drunkards. Because Sychar means drunken. It means being merrily drunk or deeply drunk. It means madness. It means falsehood. It means ungodly. It means deceit. It means foolish. But that's the name they gave the city. So what do you expect to find in that city? A lot of lost people. Right? A lot of lost people. Matter of fact, if you go back to the book of I or the yeah, the book of Isaiah and go to Isaiah twenty-eight, you'll see in twenty-eight one, woe to the crown of pride to the drunkards of Ephraim. So you see even that it's referred to the you know, the a bunch of wild people that don't that's what they are, just drunkards. So why would the Jew want to go through that land and be exposed to all that? We don't want to do that. Let's go around. Jesus doesn't do that. Okay? Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Look at, look at what our text says this morning in verse 4. But he had to, he needed to go through Samaria. Don't miss that. Okay? Now why does Jesus need to go through Samaria? Because there's people there who he needed to save. Now, if you think about that, go to, go to John 6, 
37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. You take this verse and you look at what's happening there and why Jesus needed to go to Samaria. Why? Because there's people there that the Father has given to the Son. Don't miss it. He's not going up there by, by chance. He's not going up there because, oh boy, I sure hope when I go there some people will believe in me. I, I, I'm, you know, let's take the chance, guys. Let's, let's walk up there and see if there's people that will believe. No, what he's saying is, there's somebody there that the Father's given me, and I need to go there because this will be the day of her salvation and, and even the town's salvation. Okay, so the, if you look at, even with that, you go to 2 Timothy, just another verse to, to apply here. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 19. And nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think the Lord knows those who are his before he ever calls them? Yes. yes. Or is it after they get born again? No. no. He's all-knowing. He knows. He knows that this woman in Samaria is his daughter. I'm going to save her. Now, this is awesome because she doesn't know he's coming. Keep that in mind. Man, God is so... Now, when you start to put that together in your brain, you're going, hey, you know what? He came after me too. (laughs) And I didn't know he's coming. And boy, your salvation, when you get a grip on that, your salvation will mean more to you than it ever did before. Notice John records now in our text his, Jesus' weariness. He genuinely submitted to our human limitations, he says. So he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being what? Wearied. Now I, I sit there and I go, why, why, does he, why is there a need to put stuff like that there? Why does he just say, oh, he came to the well to find this lady? But he points out these things as almost weakness in Jesus. But it is a weakness, right? How, why is God weary? Uh, you think about it, you know, so he is wearied from his journey. Now, why is that an important detail for us? Well, let's go to Hebrews chapter 2, and let's go to verses 17 and 18 there in the text, okay? Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he, may, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Why why does he allow himself to be weak? Empathy. To go through what we went through. Right? Yet without temptation. Right? He's wearied. What would you be tempted to do if you were wearied and you could do it? You know what? I'm not thirsty. I'm not hungry. 
or you could just whip something up, right? He sends his disciples to town to get food because he's hungry. So the whole point of that is these things that you'll miss in the text if you're not looking at it is showing us, remember, the whole key of the book is to get you saved. What did Jesus do to get you saved? And in his incarnation, what did he do to save you? He became like you. That's, that's amazing. Why would, you, why would the God of all glory want to be like me? Because he wants to save me. But it is because he loves me. Same for you. But don't miss those little details. Okay? Don't miss them when you read through the text. Now, he meets this woman at the well. Can you remember where you were and what you were doing when the Lord found you? You can bet the Samaritan woman could answer that question today if you were to talk to her. Just like the woman in these verses, I I was looking for something I did not have, but I didn't know what that void was in my life. I was looking for something more, something deeper, something, you know, I was drinking from every well I could find, but none were satisfying the thirst of my soul. But when I met Jesus Christ and he offered me a drink from his well, everything in my life changed. Now, notice the truths here that present themselves in this text, okay? First of all, let's talk about her isolation. She's by herself, okay? Now, the woman came for water at a really unusual hour to get water in their time. It's the sixth hour. This is noon. It's the heat of the day. And so she was with a group of people? No, she's alone. Notice that. But it was customary for the women to draw their water early in the morning in in groups. They would come there. That's where they would visit. The culture, that was the place the women would, you know, what are you doing for the day? And, you know, all these things they would, uh, before it got hot. And history would tell us if we were looking at geography or other things like that, the this was about a mile from town, the well where she came for water. That's a, she's sweaty, you know, it's hard work, but why did this one woman not come with the others? I think the answer can be found in verse 17. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for uh, you have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. So she's in fornication. That you spoke truly. Verse 28, If we, we didn't go that far, but if we go clear over here, the woman then left her water pot, went away into the city, and said, come see the man, you know, and she started, well, we'll get there, okay? But he, perhaps she had been with men who belonged to some of these other women at the well. Perhaps she was often the topic of their gossip as they drew water from the well. Nevertheless, there's some shame there and some guilt that she can't be around these other women. Because what's she doing? Everything contrary to the law of Moses. But Samaria is a little bit different. They worship on their own mountain. They worship... In, in the way that they want to worship. And we're going to see here in a little bit that 
God, the Lord says to her, you're wrong in the way you worship. In other words, you don't even know who God is. But it would seem that this woman was a social outcast. And in the course of her conversation with Jesus, he tells her that she is even isolated from God. If you look at verse 20 to 22, it says, Our fathers worship on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when we will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Listen to what he says here. You worship what you do not know. What's he, what did he just tell her? You don't know me. He said, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jew or Jews. Your act of worship, lady, you think you know God, but you don't know God. You think you know him, but you really don't know him. And that proves out in the whole conversation. She doesn't even know who she's sitting with. Even the little worship she managed to work into her, her sinful life was of no use to her spiritually. She was also then not just a physical outcast, she's a spiritual outcast. Ephesians chapter 2 would describe this woman, it would describe us before we ever came to Christ. Go to Ephesians chapter 2 and go to the first three verses there. And you see here in Ephesians Starting in chapter 2. And you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, just as the others. We look over here to verses 11 and 12. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And here's this woman who worships the way they thought was right, but this is really where she's at. She's in a place where she has no hope. <clears throat> and she is a picture of every person who is, who is not in a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? You know, the Bible says that our sinful condition separates us from God. What, what does Isaiah 59 say? We will go back here to Isaiah 59. Take a look at what this says. Some of you may have that memorized. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is he, his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. <laughs> what a miserable condition to be in. And yet, yet every person has been there, or some are still there even today. But this is what's amazing to me in this text. Okay? This is a daughter that the Father has given to her, this, to him. This is, this is going to be part, she's going to be part of the bride of Christ. And as gross of life as she's had, and as 
deep in sin as she's been, been, guess who's coming through Samaria to get her? Guess who's coming? To save her out of it. You talk about the grace of God. Jesus could have been like everybody else. There's nothing in, in Shechem or Sychar except a bunch of filthy people. Bunch of sinners. I'm not going through there. No, he comes right after those who have been given to him. You realize what a treasure you have in, in your salvation? Okay, so she's isolated, but she's ignorant. At first, she sees him as just another Jew, okay? And she wants him to know that she has some ideas. She's got some religious ideas herself, you know, how to get to heaven, you know? What does she say in, in go back here, verse 11 and 12? The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw, to draw with, and the well is deep, where then do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Now that's the key. Who do you think they were worshiping? Possibly Jacob. Who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock. I'm sure in some way that was included in the worship they had. We get over here to verses 19 and 20. Says the woman said, and by the way, this is right after he confronts her on her sin. What does she do? She changes the subject. This the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to the woman, Believe me, the hour is coming. He goes into that text. He says, You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jew. It's not found here in Shechem or Sychar in your act of worship, which was a result of rebellion in the first place. That's not where It's not going to be found at Jacob's well. It's not going to be found here. It's found in Jerusalem. You must worship the way and approach God the way he said to approach him. You just can't come up with your own plan to get saved. You can't get... Your, your own plan to worship God. You, salvation is here, not over there or not over here. So doing this is an attempt to escape these penetrating statements by Jesus that were bringing her sin right to the surface. She didn't want to deal with that. She would rather say, hey, my worship's okay. You're okay. I'm okay. We're all okay. But he shows just how little she knows about God, about worship, and even how little she knows about herself in confronting her like this. Now, look at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now notice in that text the word if. Okay, regardless of what she thought she knew, Jesus points out to her that there is one thing she does not know. Okay? She does not know who Jesus is. If you would have known, okay, you can be religious, folks. That doesn't matter if you don't know who Christ is. 
Jesus tells her if she had only knew, she could ask Jesus for living water and she would, have, she would be forever satisfied. Now, left to herself, this woman might have died thinking that she was all right spiritually. Thank God that Jesus reached into her sinful life and removed her ignorance of who Jesus was. You know, there are many things about the Bible and about theology that you, you and I may never learn, but not knowing them will not keep me out of heaven, nor, nor will not, knowing them will, how should I say it? Uh, knowing them will not keep me out of heaven, nor will not knowing them send me to hell. There's things about the Bible, there's things I don't know, you don't know, there's things we may not learn, but if you miss the gospel... If you miss the gospel, you will never see heaven, and you will go to hell. Acts 16.31 says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you what? You will be saved. But here we have this Savior, our Savior, shows up, and we see just the tender side of his grace. He could have, I mean, if this isn't a picture of him, Romans 5, just the, just a verse that's popping into my head here. Romans 5, 8. That, there you go. That while we were still sinners, what? But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. She didn't have to get her life together for him to show up. You know, I, I, I often say this. I, you'll hear me say this. He buys the garden before he weeds it. He doesn't have to have you weed the garden so you'll be acceptable to him. He comes and saves you while you're yet a sinner. The Bible tells us that he need, needed to go through Samaria. Thank God that Jesus did not operate like other men. He did not care that, this, that they were Samaritans. He, he did not hate others like them. He did not care about any kind of racial lines drawn by ignorant people. Jesus operates in the realm of grace. Grace, grace. So he went, to, he went to that place and he sat on the well because he wanted to save this Samaritan woman. He went to find her, he went to save her, and she, she did not travel to find him. I praise God for a Monday evening when Jesus could have said, or I need to go to Deer Park, Washington. It was a Monday evening, 6 o'clock at night, 1987. August 10th, Monday, when I was out in the middle of a field boasting about how great I was as a guy, you know, how many, how many people at age 23, 24 have 195 acres, new truck, motorcycles, boats, and the, the an awesome way to make money by raising crops and different things and to have the Lord put a kibosh on that. You know, they had a drought in 19, that, that time around here, and it killed all, most of our crop. But I went out because I was going to show everybody that I could, I could, weather the storm, that I'm the one in control. So I planted 10 acres of alfalfa in the front of our house, in the front 10 acres. And oh boy, it rained and it was starting to come up. And I was out there on that day 
going, I did it. I did it. And it's like somebody took a bat and hit me right behind the head. And it felt like it because it drove me right to my knees. And I started the ball. I said, Lord, and I knew instantly what he was trying to say to me. Either get your act together and follow me or I'm taking you out of here. And it changed my life. I didn't know I'd be a preacher. I didn't know I'd be a pastor. I wanted, I just knew that the next day I woke up, I was a different guy. But he met me in Deer Park, Washington. And I was, it was as if he walked all the way through all the filth and garbage to find me. And so in grace... He saved me, and he offers salvation to all who will come to him to be saved. Matter of fact, if you look at Revelation chapter 22, I remember coming across this verse years and years ago, of course, but 22.17, and the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come, whoever desires, let him take the water of, the, of life freely. All right, so salvation is all of grace. It's not about what you can give or what you can do. It's about what Jesus did when he died for you. Hey, that's a rhyme. I didn't know that. What an awesome thing. But that is true. It is about what Jesus did when he died for you. It's about you throwing in the towel. It's about you realizing that you're unable to save yourself. It's about you trusting him and his grace alone to save your soul. Look what he says in 11 through 14 again. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself? as well as his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. Has that water that you drank that, has it done that to you? Has that bubbling water been coming out of you? It's living water. It, it produces life. And some people say, well, here's a really a picture of the Holy Spirit in one's life. That may be. But the point is, is when you taste that water, it, you can never be the same. It bubbles out of you. It's like a fountain that comes out of you. You can't shut it off with a spigot. It has that effect on your life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst. I like this. Nor come here to draw. He at that moment probably didn't understand it completely. But notice what Jesus does before she drinks from the spiritual water or from Christ. She has to do something. She has to confront her sin. You don't just run to Jesus without confessing some things. See, I need to come in agreement. He says, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. I have to come in agreement with that. I have to repent of the fact that I'm a sinner and turn and follow Him. 
Why did Jesus bring up such an embarrassing issue? Because the issue of her sinful life has to be confronted. This woman had to decide what she wanted more, her life of sin or a life with the Messiah. Which is more important to you? A life in the world or a life with Jesus? I hope the answer is a life with Jesus. Now, what can we learn from this account so far? And like I said, it's part one. The account here of the woman at the well, first is that Jesus alone is the living water that satisfies our thirst. Just as the Samaritan woman was looking for men to satisfy our soul, we also look to things outside of Christ to give our hearts meaning, to give our life purpose. We do the same thing she did. She was looking for all her security and her hope in other men. We look for our security and hope in things and people. Maybe it's other men. Maybe it's other women. Maybe it's toys. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's houses. Maybe it's friends. Whatever the case may be, people are still looking for those answers in a lot of places that accept Christ. As Jesus reveals himself to her, he proclaims to her that he was the never-ending water that she was so thirsty for. Reminds me of John chapter 7, verse 38. It says, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow what? Not just fountains. Look at this. Rivers of what? Not just rivers of water. Rivers of living water. Okay, we're, we're way past a fountain now. <laughs> he who believes in me. How many of you believe in Jesus? That you put your whole trust and faith on his completed work at the cross. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. Okay? Doesn't mean I just believe him as a historical figure. I put all my trust for salvation, heaven, glory on what he did, not what I do. So when it says... He who believes in me. That's what that means. As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Is that happening to you? If the spigot's dry, go to Jesus and ask him. But you should have rivers of living water flowing out of you. People should be able to come up to you and me and be refreshed because they've been around us. Okay? What do you do when you see a river of living water? You want to drink. Okay? Do people look at you as a place to go get that drink? You're the place, you're one of the people. Oh, I said, watch them. Look at them. Something's alive in them. I want that. I need to find out how to get that. He will never tire of us. He will never become dissatisfied with us. He will never turn us away. He is the unending source of our peace, our joy, love, self-control, truth, hope, and satisfaction. If we look at the, the fruits of the Spirit there in Galatians chapter 5, abundant life is found in Him, John 10.10. 10. He is that living water. And He's not, number two here, I it's got two points, He's not surprised by our sin. He didn't he he knew the sin of this Samaritan woman before she even she never brought it up. He's not surprised that you're a sinner. The woman perceived that 
Jesus as a prophet because he, he called her out on her sin and told, he said, she says, he told me everything I ever did. And notice Jesus did this in a very gentle way. Didn't scream at her. Didn't say, hey, go get your life together, you tramp. Could have used another word there. He didn't say, you know what, I want nothing to do with you. He introduces himself as the living water. He gets her thirsty for that. Notice this. And then he says to her, oh, but before you can take a drink, let's talk about an issue in your life or some things that are going on in your life. Would you acknowledge that you are dead in your trespasses and sins and you need to be made alive? Because this water will make you alive. It's living water. But let's deal with the issue at hand. Let's deal with the sin first. So Jesus is sovereign and he sees the sin within our hearts. If we go back here to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5.15. For some have... That's not right. Throw that verse out. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. No, don't throw it out. You know, you know what I mean. But certainly he who knows our every weakness, all the gross and ugly filth, and yet he still pursues us and loves us. So I could fool you. We can come into a place of fellowship and we can, tend, we can fool one another maybe. You know, maybe God will show us some fruit of whether they're believers or not. But, you know, for the Christians, they, we can fool one another, but you'll never fool him. You'll never fool him. But yet, even in all that gross sin, he pursues us and loves us. He's not surprised by our evil desires, but instead he seeks to reconcile us with the Father. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, Therefore he is also able to save us, or save to the uttermost. Don't you like that? Save those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for the saints. I, I love that because when he saves us to the uttermost, it means completely and forever. He doesn't just save us, folks. We're completely saved. There's not a part of me that's not saved. And how long does that salvation last? It's forever. Now you say, Pastor, that's a basic truth. Yeah, that's something I need to hear constantly. Constantly. Colossians 1, verses 19 through 20, 19 and 20 says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. The, the, the amazing thing to me, and to kind of close this out here, is Jesus saw. Not just the Samaritan woman's sin, but our sin. And he is willing to shed his blood and endure immense suffering for the sake of our satisfaction and for our eternal life. You know, again, Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were sinners, what did he do? Christ died for us. That's part one. Father, thank you for our time together today. Lord, as we continue to look through into this account of the Samaritan woman, there's much to be said here. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that we were trapped in our sin. 
We were the filth, the scourge of the culture, Father. And yet, you saw a need to come directly to where we were to save us. Thank you, Jesus.